Representing the best in content creation, Bombpod Media. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah <laughs> New year, new intro Two, stat, shocking traumas and treatments. And like you just heard, I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. To whatever beautiful part of the world that you are in, whatever time of day. Okay, let's get started. This episode is going to be about Harold Shipman, part three of the series, picking up where we left off where he was last being busted for his pethidine addiction. And from there, moving on to the city of Hyde, where he unleashes his reign of terror onto the community. Before I get started, I want to give a thank you, a shout out to Kate530 for the wonderful iTunes review she left me. And thank you to everyone within the last year who has gone there giving me a review or left a rating. Thanks guys. Also a big thanks to all the people that support me on Patreon. It has helped tremendously and moving this year forward I'm really excited about the things to come. Positive changes. Just wait and see everybody. Hold on to your hats. Okay let's get into this. Dr. Shipman. We last left off where he was working at a clinic in Todd Morden, had a raging drug addiction, had been busted, and subsequently let go from the practice. He promised to the courts he would never work in an environment where he would have access to narcotics. Of course, we know what kind of joke that is. This guy is a liar. And that just is not going to happen. So what did he do? He spent about a year and a half working at a kind of office job where he didn't have any contact with narcotics. This is not going to satisfy him. This is not going to keep him happy because his need to kill is mounting and building and burning inside of him. He was just biding his time to make it look good to the medical community that he had been rehabilitated and he could move forward with his deviant and horrific behavior. While Shipman was investigating where he could move to next, he saw an ad in the paper for a clinic called the Donnybrook Medical Practice and it's located in Hyde. And he thought this was the perfect place for him to go to apply for a new position. In 1977, one of the original seven doctors who set up the Donnybrook Medical Practice had retired, and the remaining doctors felt that they needed a new doctor to take over his list of patients. The Donnybrook Practice worked in a true partnership, and probably spent more time in each other's company than they did at their home. This means that if you didn't get along with each other, it can cause major problems within a practice. 
So what they would do is have an informal process where the applicant and his wife and family were shown around the practice and taken out on the town to get a feel of everything. Next would be a formal interview where they would get down to business and talk about all his credentials, experience, all the kind of stuff that would be talked about in a formal interview. And something that also had to be discussed was his health. They asked him about his medical history. So Shipman, being the cunning bastard that he is, made no attempt to hide the fact that he had been convicted of drug addiction and theft. And he was very nonchalant about it. He intentionally knew to stress the cure more than the addiction that they would see him as someone on the mend as opposed to someone who was an addict. Dr. Moisey was one of the clinic's doctors. And this is a quote he said in regards to hiring Shipman as a known addict. Quote, as it cost several hundred thousand pounds to train a doctor, he and his colleagues did not think it was unreasonable to make every effort to make sure that the NHS, National Health Service, got productive use of the people it trains, end of quote. This is how bad doctors slip through the cracks. I'm not saying, I am not saying that someone with a history of addiction should not be given a chance. I'm not. But this is how some bad people who know how to manipulate can get through. So, to put the icing on his shit cake, he invited them to monitor his behavior during the six-month period of mutual assessment so as to leave no doubt that he was free of addiction. And this transparency very much impressed the doctors. Shipman knew that he had nailed the job and, well, he did. At the end of the six-month period, it was felt that he was entirely suitable and he fit in very well. The patients liked him, and they could find no reason to suspect the quality of his medical practice was lacking in any way. Shipman's name was officially listed as a GP at Donnybrook Clinic. He was back in business. Shipman did not see himself as a psycho killer. He saw himself as a savior of sorts, an important community figure who happened to have a little peccadillo, let's just say, an odd hobby. Even though he worked at a practice, all the doctors were independent of each other and managed their own patient lists as it suited their manner of practice. However, being new to the clinic meant that he would be watched closely, of course, especially in that six-month period. It seemed that he laid low in 1977 stayed under the radar and established his patient load and reputation as a caring, competent, old-timey doctor, which the patients of Hyde loved and were used to. So he had settled in nicely, just as he wanted. The perfect environment for murder. I'd now like to talk a little bit about his MO because it was really starting to come together. He would often visit his patients unannounced. And in this case with Sarah Marsland in August of 1978, this is exactly what he did. Let me tell you a little bit about her story. Sarah Marsland was an 86-year-old woman who lived alone and was in quite good health for her age. She was mobile and independent. 
but had come depressed after the death of her daughter Cicely. On the day of Sarah Marsland's death, another daughter, by the name of Mrs. Irene Chapman, who, believe it or not, would become one of Shipman's victims herself, arrived at her mother's house. Sarah Marsland was lying on the bed with Shipman over her. Shipman said that he had found her sitting in her chair and she had told him that she had gotten an awful pain every time she thought of Sicily. Shipman claimed he moved her onto her bed and that she had just all of a sudden collapsed and died. Yeah, like that, that makes any sense, right? He said that he tried unsuccessfully to resuscitate her, but he had no success. All of this was a bloody lie, of course, because what he had done was inject Mrs. Marsland with a deadly dose of morphine. I want to play a clip here describing another example of his MO from one of the victim's family members. Please have a listen to this. So what was his M.O.? What did he like? We're seeing a pattern here. He would choose his victims as elderly, older women. He also had men as well, but they would be living alone, having health issues, not a lot of support. He would choose them. He would choose them if they were palliative so he could get his hands on some drugs to kill other people. I will talk a little bit more about how ruthless he was with that later. So he would visit them, tell them that they would need to have some blood drawn or have an injection to make them feel better. He would inject them with a horrendous dose of morphine or dimorphine. Dimorphine is medical grade heroin and leave them to die. How he liked to have his patients left was usually in a chair, a settee, uh, up in their bed, propped, staged, fully clothed, looking peaceful, maybe with a tea nearby, maybe with a book on their lap, that type of thing. So after that, he would either call a family member and explain the death to them, announce the death to them, or he would leave and come back later, then follow through with that. He would tell the patients usually some ridiculous story of how he found them and what he thought their cause of death would be. 
he would come up with some stuff that would make absolutely no sense in the normal running of things. He would say, oh, they died of a stroke, a, a, a thrombosis, a heart attack, things like that, that you couldn't possibly know without an autopsy. But of course, people trusted and believed him. He would encourage the family to not have an autopsy and to have them cremated. Of course, this was to cover his tracks. So this was his MO. Of course, it would evolve, it would change in the future. But I just wanted to establish where he was at right now. I want to talk about in more detail how he got his hands on his weapon of choice, being narcotics, opiates, pretty much morphine or diamorphine, like I said. So remember, he wasn't supposed to have any access to opiates, right? Isn't that what he promised the courts? The law? He didn't care. I mean, I think we all know by now that shipment would not keep this promise. So since he had to at least stay away from pethidine, he chose to use morphine, diamorphine. Like no one could draw the line between those two. Narcotics are narcotics. Anyway, so why didn't he pick any other drugs to kill with, knowing of his history and his chances of getting caught? I mean, as a doctor, he could use drugs that were much easier to access, that could be easier to obtain and would not be as obvious to trace something that's maybe naturally occurring in your system, like insulin or potassium. And I, I think that he chose the morphine diamorphine because the patients would quickly slip into unconsciousness. No fuss, no muss. He had a fascination with it since that's because of his mother's illness and her death, and that's how she died. And that gave him the chance to stage his patients, set them up in the tableau that he liked. So how did he get his hands on this? Well, he set up a system where he could order large doses of morphine for his palliative patients, kill them shortly after, and use the unused drugs to kill his next victims. The doctors were supposed to waste or properly dispose of unused drugs. It was a law to do that, but no one ever checked up on doctors to see if they did. I mean, it's, it's kind of like an honor system. Of course the doctor will dispose of them. Doctors are good and trustworthy. They're our colleagues. An honor system. A loophole for him. And he took full advantage of it. So obviously, a palliative patient, sick enough as it was, was a lucrative patient for Shipman. It fulfilled both his needs to kill and to get his murder weapon of choice. Opiates. I'm going to play a clip that I think it's really important to listen to about his ruthlessness of attaining the drugs and his victims. Here we go.
I have listened to that clip over and over and over again, and it gives me chills every time. This guy, Monster doesn't even describe what he did. And thank goodness this man, Jim King, survived. But uh, I guess only time will tell how much damage it's done to him, and hopefully he will continue to move on and heal from his father's death and his own wounds. So after he killed Alice Marsland, he continued to move forward. On December 7th, 1978, he killed Harold Bramwell. He had cancer. And on December 20th, he killed Mrs. Annie Campbell with the excess of drugs that he had prescribed to Harold Bramwell. As ridiculous as this sounds, he started off slowly. Like, two murders in a month is nothing, but considering this is a man who killed over 250 of his patients, it was a slow start. It appears that he didn't kill anyone in the first part of 1979, but on July 18, 1979, he hastened the death of a Mrs. Lavinia Warmby, who had cancer. He collected her unused supply of diamorphine, and that's what he used to kill Alice Gordon, a 76-year-old with very severe psoriasis, but not a deadly condition. The doctor was visiting her to bring her a supply of medicated cream. Although she did have angina, her general health was reasonably good. She wasn't actively dying. She had some medical conditions. Even though she lived alone, her daughter did live close by and would see her mom every day. The day that he killed her, her daughter saw her mom at lunchtime and Dr. Shipman hadn't arrived for his visit yet. So after about an hour and a half of visiting with her mom, she went back home and then received a call from Shipman saying that her mother had taken ill and that she needs to rush back over to her house. When she arrived at her mother's home a few minutes later, Shipman was in her mom's front room. He told her that there would be no need for a post-mortem examination. What he didn't tell her was that her mother was dead. He was putting the cart before the horse. So the importance of what he said to her was just dawning on her when she heard her mom groaning from her bedroom. So even though he said she was dead, she wasn't in fact dead. Can you imagine what was going through this poor woman's mind? So her daughter rushed into her mom's room to find her lying unconscious on the bed, fully clothed. Alice Gorton lay in a coma until she died the following afternoon. An ambulance was not called. She wasn't taken to a hospital. And without an examination or autopsy, he certified her death was due to a coronary thrombosis. Now, there is no way in hell that he could know that. He was so cocky to say, oh, this is her cause of death, because he knew how he killed her, and he just expected people to believe him. What he did do, though, was make a big mistake. He had given Mrs. Gorton a sublethal dose. Not enough to kill her right away, but enough to cause severe damage to her brain and, and organs. He should have been busted for this. He should have been caught then. But as we know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. How was he able to explain what happened? Like why she was unconscious? Why he didn't call an ambulance? Why he didn't make this a coroner's case? Time and time again, he would get away with, well, murder. 
So he didn't kill again until three months later, probably because he got a little scared by almost getting caught. So you think he wouldn't make that same mistake again? Well, wrong. Shipman was called out one night to the home of Jack Shalmerdine, who had chronic bronchitis and days leading up to his death was suffering from an episode of heart failure. He was very breathless. So what did Shipman do to help him? He gave him a large dose of diamorphine, which would be dangerous to a healthy person, let alone someone with a severely compromised respiratory system. Jack went into a coma and died 30 hours later. Another failed attempt to murder. You think that would be a good thing. You think not murdering someone would be a good thing. But all he managed to do was make the victim and the victim's family suffer. Shimon was unnerved by these mistakes. And he didn't kill for a while. How long is hard to say. I mean, this was a serial killer going through growing pains. He was learning his craft, so to speak. It appears like it was at least a year before he started killing again. There were interludes with Shipman with his killings when, if there was a problem, he would stop for a while. And there were some occasions when he clearly thought he was going to be busted. So he would stop, and if he had gone unnoticed, he would start again. And he would tend to start with patients who were terminally ill, because they're harder to discover that they were murdered because they were expected to die. He was less likely to be caught if the patient was terminally ill. Here's a quote from Colonel Robert Ressler, who is a senior FBI profiler. Quote, Between two homicides, there is an emotional cooling down, an equilibrium, if you will, where they come back to a normal state, and there's a kind of constant, but then that builds up again slowly to the point where emotion drives them to the next homicide. But these cooling off periods would get shorter and shorter. Over time, both the extent of the pleasure and the time lasted reduced. So in order to get that little bit of pleasure, you've got to kill more and more frequently. End of quote. I want to talk a little bit about Shipman and his behavior and his time while at the clinic in Dunnybrook. He arrived there when he was 31 years old, and he quickly established himself as a senior member of the group within about a year and a half. Dr. Jeffrey Moisey arrived at Donnybrook in 1983, after Shipman. And this is how he described his first contact with him. Quote, He actually showed me around the practice and the area when I joined the Donnybrook surgery. I found him as his patients did, very approachable, very friendly, very open with his opinions. I found him an extremely affable colleague, and he certainly seemed to be a very competent doctor. End of quote. Shipman had settled in nicely there. He bought a house for him and his family, and it's where they would live for the next 22 years. Where he chose to live was Motram in Longendale. It's a pretty dark stone village that backs off a busy main truck route. Why am I talking about where he moved in? Well, because, again, he picked an unusual neighborhood to move into with small children because it did back onto a dangerous roadway where it was unsafe for children to play around. But obviously he chose it for himself because it was only a 15-minute commute to and from work. And he always arrived early and left late. His style of medical practice was to make himself available to his patients, and he showed a willingness to be involved in all aspects of their lives, whether it was directly related to a medical condition or not. 
He was obviously very friendly with a lot of his patients. They found him very approachable and therefore very easy to talk to and explain their problems to. The fact that he was willing to help them with advice on issues that were not always strictly medically related also made him very attractive as a doctor and as a confidant. Within the first few years, it seemed that Shipman had reestablished the reputation that he had cultivated in Todd Morton, that of the perfect GP. But Shipman's need to be the best was a constant source of frustration for him. Being a good doctor was not enough. He knew that when it comes to medical hierarchy, the GP is not at the top of the list. In the hospital system, it is the specialist in a particular field that is the top banana. So even with people around him thinking him that the most wonderful doctor in the world, it just wasn't enough. Shipman was hugely arrogant. He had a high self-esteem of himself, and he saw himself as a person who had struggled against all odds to be successful. The only way that he was going to be able to satisfy his need to kill was to work in an unsupervised environment, like a small town, as an old-timey GP. Even though he wanted to be revered and be seen as the best in the world, he would never be able to work in a hospital setting, could never be a specialist because, first, he just wasn't smart enough, and second, he couldn't survive under the scrutiny. He couldn't kill with the frequency that he wanted to and needed to. Between 1981 to 1984, he started killing occasionally and sporadically. In the first three months of 1981, there were two cancer deaths. And why was that significant? Because as I said before, it's how he would start to get and replenish his supply of morphine. Those last two deaths were not enough to keep his bag full of his murder weapon. So he tried using another drug called Largactyl, also known as Thorazine. It's an antipsychotic. Uh, an overdose causes unconsciousness, difficult breathing, irregular heartbeat, coma, and death. And this is how he murdered Ann Colthard on September 18, 1981. At the time, her death seemed natural, as she had just had a stroke and was plainly declining. He visited her in the evening, and he gave her an injection of Largactyl. The regular dose is about 25 milligrams, but he gave over 100 milligrams. The strong sedative effect would have led to unconsciousness and coma and the shutting down of her respiratory center, like I had said before. He injected this poor woman knowing full well that she would slip into a coma and die. The next morning, Shipman informed the family that she would die that day, because, you know, he's God, he knows these things. And of course, he would make sure of that, because in the evening, he would go back and give her another large dose. It seems Shipman kept Mrs. Coulthard very deeply sedated over the next 24 hours. And how sadistic is that? How pathological is that? Again, no hospital, no ambulance, no autopsy, and he insisted on her cremation to cover his tracks. A month later, he did the same with a lady named Elsie Scott. Shipman deliberately drew out her death for 18 hours. There are several reasons why I think that he killed these two women this way. First of all, he didn't have any access to the morphine, diamorphine. Secondly, I think he was experimenting with different ways to kill. When not having the drug of choice to kill with, he was experimenting. It was a less dramatic death. It wasn't so quick and so sudden, therefore not arising as much suspicion. 
and I think he might have been adding to his repertoire. And lastly, it added fire to his godly image of himself that he could kill any way he wanted and get away with anything and everything. So, do you guys need a break right now? I know I do. But you're a ravenous bunch. A ravenous bunch. But I, I would like to take a second here to talk about Create Photo Calendars. Create your personalized photo calendar online in minutes. Simply upload your photos from your computer, smartphone, even your Instagram account. You choose from a variety of photo page layouts and background designs. Add birthdays and personal events, and of course they save your events, making it even easier to create for next year. Their calendars are top quality, and most orders print and ship within 48 hours. They have a special offer right now for podcast listeners only. Simply go to createphotocalendars.com to create your calendar and then save up to 55%. Just use coupon code PODCAST during the checkout and save 55%. So are you ready to hear more about Dr. Shipman? Oh, <laughs> Dr. Shipman, that was a bit of a Freudian slip. Where was it? Anyway, it seems that he didn't start to kill again until 1983. I don't think it was because he couldn't, but because he didn't find killing with Thorazine satisfying. And, of course, he didn't have any palliative patients to steal opiates from. Shipman's first murder of 1983 was likely 90-year-old Percy Ward. And he was a convenient choice for Shipman, because his death was expected. He had a ruptured duodenal ulcer and had great difficulty breathing. So Shipman seemed to be dipping his toe, so to speak, again into murdering with little risk to himself. He was able to get into his murderous ways when palliative patient Charles McConnell died, leaving him in excess of morphine. The next victim was Moira Fox, and she fit Shipman's MO perfectly. She lived in a sheltered accommodation, which is uh, supportive housing. She had many ailments, and she had changed many doctors frequently. And she was also considered a demanding patient by shipment standards anyway. He visited Moira Fox and killed her. While still there, there was an unexpected visit by the caretaker. Thinking on his feet, as usual, he was fast with the lie. He said that when he arrived, he had found her door ajar and could see Mrs. Fox lying on the floor behind the door, preventing him from opening it. He had forced his way in, pushing her to one side. He examined her and found that she was dead. When the caretaker reached the flat, Moira Fox was lying on her back on the bed, looking as though she had been laid out by an undertaker. Her clothes did not appear to be disturbed, and Shipman acted like the total creep he was. He let his true colors show to the caretaker when he said this. I'm telling you, this is such a weird thing to say. Mrs. Moira Fox was dead as a rum old devil who had led people on a merry dance. Whatever that means. I just had to say it because what? Ugh. Anyway, he certified her cause of death as a coronary thrombosis, one of his 
favorite CODs. Entering into 1984, he started killing more frequently. In the next four years, he was killing around 12 patients a year without any breaks, no cooling off periods. A cooling off period, as described by Colonel Robert Ressler, quote, the concept of cooling off period is that in serial homicide, the development of a plan or a fantasy that leads the killer to the eventual crime is an exciting process that they take great delight in. The crimes are committed in a higher state of emotion, but then there is, after that, a cooling off period. The act of homicide releases tremendous energy and calm follows. To start with, those cooling off periods can be as long as two years, and at the end, they can be short as two hours. End of quote. So over time, both the extent of the pleasure and the time that lasted would diminish, so that later on in his career, in order to get the little bit of pleasure, he's got to kill more and more frequently. Shipman was starting to get a reputation as being intolerant of certain types of patients. He would get annoyed by people who constantly made appointments. And he would say things like, Oh, is she here again? We'll get a permanent seat for her because she's in here every week. I don't know who or what she thinks, what she wants me to do. He probably thought he was being funny. He was just being the sarcastic ass that he was. So if you think about it, being a difficult patient was a prescription for death. Dr. Shipman visits you, a little time alone, a quick prick, and a lethal dose of morphine hits the nervous system and boom, problem solved for him. This was the fate of 51-year-old Dorothy Tucker. She was overweight and suffered from ulcers. She could hardly walk and used a wheelchair, and she was considered by Shipman a demanding patient. Dorothy Tucker spoke to her cousin, Mrs. Bennett, on the phone on the day of her death. She told Mrs. Bennett that she had called Shipman as she wasn't feeling well and that he was coming over to give her an injection and told her that she would feel better in a bit. She said that she intended to have a sleep and she was found dead in the early evening. Lights were off. The gas fire was on very high and the apartment was very warm. Dorothy was found slumped in the corner of the settee, looking as if she were asleep. So as you can see, there was an evolution in his MO. Shipman would turn the heat up full blast in people's homes or the rooms that they were in so that it could affect the temperature of their bodies from cooling down too fast, therefore skewing the time of death. Shortly after he killed Dorothy Tucker, two more of Shipman's patients died of cancer and this would fill up his murder drugstore. His next victims were Gladys Roberts, 78, Joseph Bardsley, 83, Winifred Aerosmith, 70, Mary Winterbottom, 76, Ada Ashworth, 87, Joseph Everall, 76, Edith Wibberley, 76, Eileen Cox, 72, on December the 24th was when he killed the last lady. During this period, Shipman's M.O. evolved again. He began removing the dentures from his victim's mouth. When a patient has been given a lethal dose of opiate and falls into a very deep sleep, the relaxation of the muscles might allow the dentures to become dislodged. If a denture were to slip into the throat, it might cause the patient to gag and begin to gasp and struggle. 
and Shipman was not removing the dentures to prevent the patient from choking out of kindness. He simply was being practical. Choking or gagging might jolt them out of an unconscious state, and he didn't want them to wake up. The next five years, he was very busy with his killing. In 85, he killed at least 11 more of his patients. 86, eight patients. 87, eight patients. 88, 11 patients. In 89, he killed 12 patients. His last victim of 1989 was a close call. The victim was Joseph Wilkinson, 85-year-old widower. Shipman narrowly avoided being caught red-handed by the district nurse who had visited. At midday, when the district nurse arrived to dress Mr. Wilkinson's ulcerated leg, she found him sitting in his usual chair, dead but still warm. She had called Shipman's surgery, but he did not tell her that he had visited Mr. Wilkinson that morning, probably to prevent the death being discussed in detail at the surgery. On his cremation form, Shipman gave the time of death as 12.30 p.m. and said that he had seen Mr. Wilkinson alive at 10.30 p.m. Both were lies. He almost got caught red-handed. It probably gave him a bad scare because he didn't kill again for another 10 months. Over 15 years, Shipman had killed 71 of his patients, of whom nine were under the age of 70, three were in their 50s, and of these, 56 were women and 17 were men. He did all of this without being detected. Dr. Moisey, the physician that joined the practice a year and a half after Shipman, had confessed that since Shipman's arrest and trial, the other members of the practice have gone back and wrestled with the question of whether they should have been suspicious, whether there were any clues they could have picked up on during that time. But despite all of their best efforts, they could find no way in which they could have realized what was happening or that he was doing anything out of the ordinary. However, the reason why it was unlikely that the doctors could see anything wrong is probably exactly why Shipman chose to work at Dunningbrook. Up to 1994, the doctors in the practice had their own individual lists of patients, and provided they were not away on holiday or at a course or a conference, they would be responsible for the care of their own patients and not for anyone else's. This meant that Dr. Shipman would have been responsible for his patients only, and anybody else's contact with them would have been very minimal. Things changed dramatically in 1991. Shipman would become even more dangerous than ever. In 1990, the partners of Donnybrook had started talking about becoming fund holders. It meant that they would act like directors of a limited company in charge of their own finances. It was a great move for the doctors and their practice. They would be increasing the use of computerization. They would have control over their money and business. It would be streamlined, state-of-the-art. This, however, was bad news for shipment. It meant that the practice would work as a true partnership where the doctors would be able to scrutinize medical notes made by their colleagues and their behavior and practice would have been much more transparent. There was no way Shipman was going to stick around. He would get caught or he wouldn't be able to murder in the rate at which he needed. He couldn't continue to work there as a doctor and a killer. So Shipman made his move. He lied to the doctors at the practice and told them that he had been looking to move for a while and had been going to interviews, but had not been successful obtaining another partnership. What he really wanted to do was work on his own. He wanted an independent practice. 
That way he could carry on his patterns of killing undetected. He was less likely to have people watching over him, and as a single-handed practitioner, he would not have other doctors in the surgery to pass any comment on how he was behaving. His excuse for leaving was this. He said that he did not think that the practice was moving fast enough. They weren't moving forward with the fund holding changes. And this is so ironic because it took Shipman nine months to leave. His partners were kind enough to allow him to keep working at Donnybrook. But the whole time he was screwing them by getting a practice set up across the street and poaching over 3,000 of their clients. In most practice agreements, there is a clause that prevents a partner from setting up in practice within a few miles of the original practice or taking his list with him. His partners realized pretty quickly that he had deliberately disregarded both. His new surgery was within a hundred feet of Donnybrook practice and he had no intention of leaving any of his patients behind when he went. He even poached a few of the surgery staff as well. The Donnybrook practice could have taken him to court, but it would have cost an enormous amount of money, so they decided to let it go. At the time that Shipman announced that he was leaving, several of the doctors who had been present at his original interview felt very let down. They felt that they had given him a second chance and that he had then thrown it back in their faces. Shipman timed his move as well. The reason why he stayed so long was because the practice was doing very well financially and he convenient left when his portion of the tax bill was due, leaving them to pay for it. Dr. Moisey reflects upon Shipman's character. Quote, I would always describe Dr. Shipman as a mercurial character. It was often quite difficult to predict what sort of mood he would be in from one day to the next. He was certainly a man with very strong opinions and that he felt that the way in which he practiced medicine was the correct one and the one that everybody else should follow. On August 24, 1992, Dr. Shipman opened the doors to his murder clinic on 21 Market Street. He arrogantly named it The Surgery, like it was the only place to go. Over 3,000 patients went with him from Donnybrook, and there were hundreds more on a waiting list to have the good doctor as their family physician. They literally were waiting in line to possibly be murdered. To Shipman's patients, this was the perfect surgery and he was the perfect physician. Shipman's ego loved this reputation and the adulation that he received. He saw himself as deserving celebrity status. Shipman demanded the best of everything. He would prescribe the most expensive medications and treatments for his patients at their expense, even if there was a cheaper and just as effective alternative. Not everybody liked Shipman, though. Many people saw right through him. They saw him as the arrogant and conceited jerk that he was. Here's a quote from Alan Royston, the son of Betty Royston, who had mild dementia, one of his victims. Quote, On occasions when I had met him to arrange for him to visit my mother, I never liked him. From the first moment I met him, I found him arrogant and ignorant, his whole attitude to us seemed to be, go away, who are you? Don't question me. Her daughter-in-law, Susan, was of the same opinion. She would accompany Betty to her appointments. Quote, I never liked him at all. I thought he was very arrogant. One time when I went with Betty, because she was so shy, she wouldn't say anything. I spoke up for her and he said, shut up, 
I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your mother. So I really didn't like him. End of quote. Shipman loved to humiliate people, and that really came out when he had his own practice. He had receptionists quit because of the way he treated them. They were not to talk to him unless they were spoken to. And he would make fun of anybody with any impediments that they had, like the way they walked or the way they talked. People who worked with him would describe him as having a Jekyll and Hyde personality. I think one of the scariest things about a doctor with his own practice, being a serial killer, is that his victims willingly go to him. They trust him with their lives. Hell, they like him. Some adore him. And, and he wasn't under scrutiny of practice doctors. As a serial killer, what more could you ask for? You don't have to hunt down the most marginalized and vulnerable people in society. Take the Yorkshire Ripper, for instance, Dennis Nielsen. He went after prostitutes and the homeless, hunted the streets at high risk of being caught. Shipman had his victims making appointments to see him, or they would willingly allow him to visit him in their own homes. They were inviting in the devil. On October 7th, which happens to be my birthday, ugh, he started murdering again, much in the same manner as before, and this was only a few weeks after his grand opening. He murdered 72-year-old Monica Sparks. Mrs. Sparks was unsteady on her feet and had a few recent falls. He visited her at her home and took her life with the injection of a deadly amount of morphine. He then called for her sister-in-law, Phyllis Holt, to tell her that Mrs. Sparks had had a small stroke but wasn't able to get her to go to a hospital because there were no ambulances available. This was a complete lie because on review of that day, there were plenty of ambulances available. Shipman further explained that he had told Mrs. Sparks to lie on her bed and await his return. He said that upon his return, he found her dead at approximately 3.30 p.m. So he tells a woman who's had a stroke to get up and walk into your bedroom and lie down. He certified her death as a stroke. Monica Sparks was thought to be the only murder that Shipman committed in 1992. The following year, in 1993, he killed at least 16 of his patients. In 1994, he stepped up the risk factor. I think that he wasn't getting enough of just killing people. He wasn't getting the thrill that he required. He not only killed 12 of his patients, he killed one of them in his office practice. Here's a clip.
So horrible. By this time, Shipman thought himself a god. He could do anything he wanted and never get caught. Only he couldn't have been more wrong. There were a couple of important people taking notice. And one of them was John Shaw, an ex-cop who started his own taxi business. He wanted to help the elderly get around town for shopping and appointments. He was a very caring man who got to know his clients. He didn't just help them get around. He would help them put their shopping away and do minor household chores like changing the light bulbs and always made sure that they were safe and sound when they got home. He would make sure they locked the doors behind him and would give a sign like flicking a light off and on knowing that they were okay. He started to take notice when his clients started to die. Having a cop's way of thinking, he began to make a list of the people that were dying, the dates, and he saw a trend that his clients were dying after seeing or being visited by Dr. Shipman. It was very disturbing, but he didn't feel like he could go to the police with the list. They would think him crazy, accusing a doctor of Shipman stature for serial murder. It was a dangerous thing to do. He would likely lose his livelihood. He told his wife about this, and she discouraged him from going to the police. But he never stopped looking out for his clients, and he kept adding to this list. As John was starting to keep record of the deaths, Shipman began to remove any evidence of them. From Mrs. Sparks on, he destroyed his visits book, which recorded the times and the visits of his patients. In 1995, Shipman killed at least 30 patients. The high that Shipman got from killing his patients was diminishing. His crimes were escalating. Nine of the 30 patients he killed, he did in quick succession. He killed Lucy Virgin and Maria West three days later. He then killed Joseph Shaw, and three days after that, he killed two people in one day. Netta Ashcroft and Lily Bardsley. Killing two in one day slowed him down a little because it was a whole week before the deaths of Mary Fernley, John Crompton, Frank Crompton, and Vera Brocklehurst became his victims. 1996 was also a busy time for this psychopath. He had already killed up to and above 172 patients, and then in 1996 he killed at least another 30. But by now, he had learned a lot of lessons and his methods of concealment were more sophisticated. You see, Shipman did everything possible to have families commit to having their loved ones cremated. It was a surefire way to have the evidence destroyed. His lies on the cremation forms became more elaborate. He always claimed that others were present at the time of death, if he had been there, although normally he had been alone with the patient. He also began to claim far more frequently that someone had seen the deceased alive between his visits and the discovery of the body. Here's a quote from Colonel Robert Ressler. He believes that, quote, Shipman's psychology made him extremely cunning and that he was perfecting a scenario that would escape detection, end of quote. On January 14, 1997, he celebrated his 51st birthday. His desire to kill should have been waning. Instead, his killings were still escalating. In the next 12 months, he would kill 37 of his patients. Believe it or not, it seems that even serial killers reach a retirement age. 
Criminal psychologists and profilers agree that if undiscovered over a period of about 30 years, a serial killer will burn himself out and the murders will simply stop by the time the killer reaches 50. What this timeless serial killer didn't know yet was that he would be getting a forced retirement. This would be the last year that he would kill. His well-constructed world was falling apart and his arrogance and godlike view of himself kept him from seeing the mistakes that he was making. He felt that he could do no wrong while he was doing a lot of it. The desperate need to kill brought with it a reckless confidence and a volume of deaths that simply could not go unnoticed. It was in 1997 that coincidence became suspicion and suspicion led to discovery. I'm going to end this episode right here because there is so much more to tell. The next episode will discuss how he got caught, what evidence they gathered, how they did it, his court case, and his eventual demise. So I look forward to that. And I look forward to sharing it with you guys. So what usually happens at this time? That's right. The Suji Room. Only... Bear with me. I'm not going to have a suture room this week because I want to introduce to you something new that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be doing a segment or an episode monthly or bi-monthly called Hardcore ER. Let me tell you a little bit about it. You all know that most of the episodes end with a little segment called The Suture Room. It's about the silly and ridiculous side of the ER. People get up to some interesting things. Human beings are unpredictable and emotional. Anything can happen, especially if they are intoxicated, angry, or busted for doing something illegal, or just plain strange. You've heard stories about cell phones up people's butts, genitals stuck in bathtub faucets, and all that fun stuff. Generally, everything turns out just fine. Their egos are usually hurt more than anything else. But there is another side of the ER that is very dark, and it's filled with tragedy. And I'm not talking about compound fractures, degloved limbs, and other catastrophic and sometimes bizarre injuries. I've had quite a few people approach me via email, Facebook, and Twitter and social media. They said they wanted more, more intense cases, more blood and guts, so to speak. I put a lot of thought into this. The things I've seen and worked will be with me for the rest of my life. I still have nightmares and some flashbacks. For instance, a baby crying can set me off sometimes because I go into trauma nurse mode. I'm ready to jump into action. It only lasts for a couple seconds or a couple minutes, but in those moments, I can't tell the difference between trauma or a baby crying because he's hungry. Certain smells set me off, like the smell of raw meat or hand sanitizer. Sometimes it's fleeting. Sometimes it'll vibrate through me in the background for the whole day. I have PTSD. It's been hard for me to admit to it. Why? Because I'm supposed to be tough. I'm supposed to be able to handle it. It has at times made me feel weak and a failure at my job. I know that's not true, mostly. I've had a lot of counseling and it's helped me out tremendously. I've been able to come to terms with things, process some pretty lousy stuff and find some peace and cope. I really miss being an ER nurse. I feel like part of me is missing. But I'm on a new adventure, this podcast, and I have an amazing family. 
So this all leads back to why I put so much thought into digging deep into the dark corners of the ER. It's really hard for me to talk about. And how much do I talk about? How much do I share? How deep do I dive? How much can people handle? So, in comes Hardcore ER. It's not going to be pretty. In fact, it's going to be downright horrifying at times. But it's up to you, dear listener, to decide what you can handle. I will give you a warning at the beginning so that you will know what will be discussed. I can assure you it will always maintain the dignity and confidentiality of people involved. I will tell it in the most respectful and compassionate way possible. But ugly is ugly. For me, it's not the broken bones and blood and guts and grey matter that haunts me. It's why and how it happened. The darkest and most demented deaths of the human mind. I'll leave you with that. You've been warned. I'm not being dramatic. This is real. This is what's not talked about. But it's what haunts us. So there will be a hardcore ER this month. Look out for it. And never fear. I will keep the Suture Room episodes at the end of every regular episode. So that's going to stick around. Okay? So that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. So please, if you could, pop on over to iTunes and leave me a review. And maybe check out my Patreon page and see what I have to offer there. Okay, this ends today's episode of STAT. Shocking traumas and treatments where sometimes it's the cure that kills you. (laughs) Ha 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 ha.